North Otago. It's rich in history and strong in character. And you have found the podcast that celebrates all that is good within our district. Join Gary and Damien every week as they either interview a legend or someone who is putting North Otago on the map yet again. North Otago legends, up-and-comers, and a bit of history. The name says it all. And we're back on air for another day, Gary. Indeed. Great to be back. You know, there was a time there I thought, man, can we keep up with these every week? Because I know you're very busy, especially at the moment, and getting the guests to come in, and, and I've had some busy seasons as well, but... I think we've done well. One a week for the last 23 weeks. Yeah, no, it's all going well. And um, actually, we've still got a lot of names that potentially we can call on. And um, it's just a matter of, you know, are they in, interested? Are they keen? And, yeah. um, you know, can they make the time? I'll tell you what, I've got a couple of real good leads at the moment and I'm chasing them down. Right. And um, some exciting people coming up on the podcast, but it's working around their schedules because sometimes these people are very busy mm-hmm. and just trying to get them at the right time. But, yeah, um, I'm going to let you introduce today's podcast guest because you probably know a lot more about this gentleman than I do. Well, I do, and it's not because I went to Waitaki Girls because I didn't. Um, but, obviously, people who went to Waitaki Girls and uh, will know um, may know him from teaching days, uh, but it, um, it's someone who's also been very involved in the heritage scene, who's... Uh, been in the hospitality industry, he's um, been very involved in the Duntroon community um, and in Amaru community. So, yeah, very, very well known uh, amongst a lot of people. And so it's with great pleasure to actually introduce Mike Gray. So welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. Great to have you with us today. So thanks for taking the time out. Um, We we always like to go back to the beginnings. So... um, I, I know you weren't born in Omaru, but do you want to tell us where you where you were born and what uh, what brought you to this place? Well, I'll give you a clue, mate. <laughs> oh no! You didn't Aussie, know that. I did. Didn't know that. No, if you didn't. had told me that earlier, I would have thought twice about that. <laughs> oh well, well, I'll give him the benefit of the yeah, doubt. Yeah, no, now. he's he's one of the good ones. Yeah, yeah. I was born in Sydney, <laughs> yeah. and. Um, my mother and father both served in the uh, armed forces during the Second World War. Uh, Dad was in the artillery and Mum was in the first Australian General Hospital. She was a nurse. And um, uh, they got married over in Jerusalem and they came back to Australia, uh, I think because maybe she was pregnant and they got out of the army and I was born then in um, Sydney. Um, And then... I can't remember too much about that. There's several stories I could tell you about horseshit down in the paddock, but I won't go there. Uh, <laughs> another one is that um, we moved to Kutamundra, um, which is a country town, uh, midway between Sydney and uh, Melbourne on the Great Railway Line. A huge uh, area there uh, full of trains, and it was just a big meeting place, and everyone stopped there for tea. Uh, and I was, uh, we lived in Bradman Street. Now, a lot of not, not a lot of people know that Donald Bradman um, actually was born or grew up uh, in Cootamundra before he became the boy from Bowral. Wow. And he went over to Bowral where he learnt his cricket and things like that. So I lived in Bradman Street in Cootamundra. Mm. Um, the time there, oh boy, um, I got rheumatic fever and so I was on my back. Um, luckily, my mother was all nurse, so she nursed me through the rheumatic fever. But um, tragedy hit us when uh, my younger brother um, was hit by a train and uh, died a few days later. Well, that was absolutely traumatic for the family, and more so for my parents than me. I was just a young lad. Um, So we uh, packed up and moved to Adelaide, and that's where I spent my adolescent years. I jokingly talk about the town I lived in, which was called Tea Tree Gully. It was a bit like Dry Gulch. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like, did you think that was a better place to, to spend those years, um, you know, making that move? Yeah, well, it was. I mean, basically all our family was still in New South Wales, all the relations, but mum just had to get out of there mm. and um, start a new life. Uh, and so that was, we picked 
well, South Australia's almost in the middle of nowhere in a sense. It's the eastern states over there and the westerns over there. South Australia's in the middle. They've got their own lifestyle. Mm. Oh, it was great. I loved it. Yeah. Yep. And um, you, so you went through high school? Yep, went through high school, played Australian rules and cricket and did all the usual things that a high school lad does. Yeah. No rugby there? No, I can't remember. <laughs> I don't, don't remember any sign of rugby in no. South Australia. No. Yeah, Aussie rules are very big over there, isn't oh, it? Oh, totally. Yeah. It's, it's the only thing. Yeah. Yeah. You still follow it? Oh, no, I can't. I mean, it, you just don't get it over here. And um, my brother does. He's an avid fan. Back He lives back in Adelaide. Yeah. We go and see him from time to time. So um, went through high school. So what, what after that? Well, I, I, I went to uh, – I actually joined a religious order called the Christian Brothers. And um, I spent a number of years there. But um, I must admit I was a bit disillusioned with the idea that in principle – uh, a religious community should be a place um, where people are very focused on their um, their mission, their, the, the, the values that they have and so on. But um, the reality was that uh, often there were a lot of individuals who were really focused on their own needs. And uh, I stuck it for a while, but then finally I left and uh, I bought a one-way ticket to New Zealand. So how old were you then? Uh, 30, uh, 70, about 32. Right. Okay. What, why New Zealand? Well, I, I taught in Melbourne, uh, which was quite good. Um, I taught down in Tasmania and I loved Tassie. I thought it was God's own country. And the only people that contradicted me were people that had been to New Zealand. So they finally convinced me that I should come. So I was looking, having left the religious order, to have a new start so I came over and bought a one-way ticket and ended up teaching at Logan Park High School in Dunedin. Right. And, um, so yeah, what year that, was that, do you remember? Sorry? Yeah, 1975. That was a good year, Gary. Was it? Yeah, it was a great year, 1975. Did you stay at high school then? Yeah, no, I was born then. <laughs> uh, so um, anything in particular that drew you to Dunedin to start off with? Or? Yeah, I, I guess um, Dunedin reminded me so much of Hobart. Mm. Hobart's on a got hills and the city sort of wanders around the hills over the Derwent River and uh, the similarities with uh, Dunedin just couldn't beat mm. it. So, uh, yeah, we settled. And, and um, yeah, going from teaching over the year to teaching here, was it a fairly straightforward transition? Any, any issues with that? No, no. I mean, New Zealand was... Um, not as sophisticated as Australia, so therefore teaching was a little bit easier. Um, and, of course, now it's tough again. And, yeah. And it's, yeah. Yeah, life's <laughs> tough as a teacher. Yeah. Can be. No, that's good. And, and yeah, best uh, best memories of being in Dunedin? Um, well, I got totally immersed in the school, uh, became a housemaster and... Uh, at one stage I was climbing the ladder and I even applied for a job as Deputy Principal of Queen's High School. I got to the interview stage, but the, um, uh, I got pipped at the post there. So mm. I thought that was a challenge, trying mm. to get my way into a position in a girls' school. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, I, you know, I told them what a, a male figure could bring to the thing. Anyway, yeah, that was one interesting point. Um, yeah, I, I got thrown in the deep end, literally, in the harbour and had to teach rowing. Uh, uh, which was quite interesting. You take an eight out of novices and uh, and they're a bit petrified and they're all rowing out of harmony. I just say, look, if something happens, just jump out of the boat and walk home. Yeah, and none <laughs> ever did. <laughs> I had a couple of scary times where I had to rescue a, you know, get in there and swap with a kid and start rowing myself to try and get some power behind them, but yeah. that's because they were novices. How many years did you coach rowing for? Um, Sorry? How many years did you coach? Oh, I actually wasn't coaching so much as managing them. I just managed And that them, was yeah. hard work because you yeah. get up early in the morning and do the rowing and then you they go back to school and you go back to school and have to teach. So it's a long day. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Every year I'd knock on the door to the principal and say, um, look, I've done my turn at this. Can, I, I want to get out of rowing. Oh, yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, well, you have done a really good job. Thanks, Mike. Uh, look, just hang in there and I'll look around. Twelve months later, I'll be knocking on the door and the same thing happened. So finally I knocked on the door one day 
And I said, look, um, I've solved the problem of the rowing. He says, yeah, what have you done? Uh, I said, um, I'm resigning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gave him plenty of opportunity, I obviously. Did. I did. Yeah. So I rowed basically all the time I was there. And yeah. Finally, when I left, that's when I finished my rowing career. Yeah. How long did you spend there? Oh, hell, that's a difficult question, the number <laughs> of years. Um, yeah. Uh, I, uh, when I left teaching, um, I'd married the art teacher at Logan Park. And, um, well, that's probably a good experience to tell us about. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, she was studying. She had a family and she her marriage had broken up and she was trying to raise these kids. Oh, the house was a, a wreck. It was horrible. But, um, yeah, yeah, so we, we got married. Um, our wedding took place in a little church in Anderson Bay and the reception was just, um, you know, a BYO in the church hall. Mm-hmm. We re- we were we had no money really, mm. and uh, but that was a great experience. And when I left teaching, it was because she was wanting to set up a, an art business, so we set up Gray's Studio, and uh, we bought an old butcher shop in um, Northeast Valley. Um, it was the guy walked out, and the council warnings that he was going to be closed down were still stuck on the wall. <laughs> right. <laughs> So you cleaned that up and turned it into a, an art studio. Yeah, it became an art gallery yeah. and we supported Polytech students by giving them like their first ex- exhibition mm-hmm. type thing. Uh, we'd always buy a piece from whoever exhibited to encourage them. Um, and, and she would call, because she was an art conservator and looking to conserve uh, artworks from the previous eras and things, she would put a focus on an artist like a Dunedin artist and say, we're going to have an exhibition, a retrospective exhibition of Harry Miller. So bring along your artworks and we'll hang them on the wall for an exhibition. Well, they'd bring them along. And, of course, often they needed cleaning or that sort of thing. So we generated work that way. And also got people to share their artists' work. So uh, an exhibition of Harry Miller was a pretty rare thing to do a retrospective. And we did that for several artists. Uh, It was also at the time when... um, um, there was a big revolution in the art world in terms of framing. Um, I don't know, if you have an old picture, particularly a watercolour, and you have a look at it, it's got brown spots on it, and that's called foxing. Mm. That's why slightly foxed the bookshop down here. Ah, right. Its meaning comes from the fact that the books are old yes. and they're in good condition. They're only slightly foxed. Uh, well, and the foxing comes... And the foxing comes from the acid in the paper uh, turning brown. Right. And so in the past, a lot of artworks, good artworks, were framed with cardboard behind them and cardboard around them that was poor quality. And so it would destroy the artworks. And at that time, they just discovered conservation um, and, and museum quality board, which had no acid in it. And from then on, it was a case of trying to convert people to use quality materials to protect your artworks. So we were at the forefront of that, mm-hmm. which was great fun, mm-hmm. working with Polytech students, teaching them to properly frame their art and things like that. And were you doing this as part-time alongside yeah. teaching? No, no, I'd given up teaching in order okay. to join my wife there. She was yeah. doing the conservation work and I took over the framing business. Right. So I did the conservation framing, she did the conservation of the artwork. Our very last job um, brought us to Omaru and we were asked to restore the Stations of the Cross in the Catholic Basilica mm-hmm. and they were made of plaster and they were from Paris. Beautiful artwork in it. But when you studied it, you could see that the paintwork was flaking off and so we were asked, can, can we do something about that? So we looked at it and took it on as a challenge and, um, yeah, yeah, we figured out what to do. And so if you go down there now, they're in excellent condition. Yep. Because they've been restored. Wow. Yeah. How long did that take? Oh, it took a couple of months. Um, at that time we were living just out of town here at uh, Tokarahi Homestead. Yep. So I've jumped ahead there. But, um, yeah, that place was put up for sale. Um and we were in Dunedin and we saw it and we said, wow, look at that entrance hall. We've got to go and look at that place. So we came up and 
we wandered through the front door and just went, wow, 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 the grandeur of the place. Doric columns in the entranceway, uh, embossed wallpapers. Oh, stunning. Um, and then we went out and so we went to the farmer who was selling it and made an offer. And it would appear that up other people had walked in and walked out again because it was too big a challenge. Yep. I mean, there was rising damp everywhere. The floors were all spongy. The ceilings were falling in. There were... I think it's 13 possums living in the roof. So that was, um, was it the McCones? Yeah, that it's one? the McCones. Yeah. And what year was that when you had a look through there? Do you remember? God, Roughly. No. <laughs> in, the, in the 1990s. Yes. And um, So the homestead brought you to Omaru? Yeah, yeah, well. You, and then you got work here while you were here? Well, well. yeah, sort of. Um, but we bought the homestead more or less as... Um, well, we just loved it and wanted to do it. At some time in the future, we were going to restore it. Oh, okay. That was the plan, yeah. sometime in the future. But meanwhile, we're still back living in Dunedin and um, sending the kids to school and teaching flat out. We were both teaching. Uh, no, that's before we did the art thing. Um, and uh, in the conservation coming up here to do the Stations of the Cross, uh, we travelled from homestead into town and back out again each day and each day the trip got worse for my wife she, she was complaining about every pothole we hit and uh, I knew something wasn't quite right so we called it quits come Christmas and went back to Dunedin and she went and saw the uh, doctor and she'd already had a melanoma removed some years before and bingo it was back and it was in every lymph node everywhere and by March she died so um, that uh, that sort of put everything on hold. Um, so back in Dunedin then, which was still our home base, uh, I went back teaching this time to King's High School. <laughs> so I spent time there, right. um, which was interesting. Um, yeah. How old were the children? Well, they'd grown up, were growing up. They were adolescents at school and... Um, heading off to university and things like that. So the timing was reasonably good. Uh, when uh, I met Lynn, my current wife, who, uh, yeah, that's a story in itself, eh? Mm -hmm. um, that was back in the days when if you were lonely and lost and looking for a partner, you put an ad in the paper. Yeah. There was a, a page once a week in the ADT where you, people would write a little description of who they were and what they were looking for and you shared phone numbers and things like that. Yeah. So we went through that process and that was how we met. Wow. Um, and, of course, she had a family too, so that was interesting. And she's from Dunedin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. she's a Dunedin lass. Right. So that, it seems like there would have been a really tough season for the children especially, um, going through that, loss of their mother. Um, and then you met Lynn and then there was a journey to North Otago at some stage to start a new life or start afresh or to... Yeah, well, so. we, we gradually made the decision when we, just after we were married, that we needed to have a new life. Yep. So the focus of that was going to be restoring the homestead. Yep. So we set about spending 12 months packing up, settling our affairs in Dunedin and heading up. And so we arrived at Tokarahi Homestead in the middle of winter and disconnected all the power because it wasn't that safe and then spent six months restoring the place. That we did just, it in six months. That doesn't sound long because I know how much you did and you've described a bit about what needed to be done, but, um, you know, the, the fact you ended up with such a well-restored place in such a relatively short time is pretty amazing. It's all because of a builder called Ali Kingan. Right. And Ali and his wife owned Windsor Park Estate, that house. And that was a similar age-type building, and he knew the ins and outs of that and the failings of that building. So when he saw ours, he knew all those too. And he was really... He was a restorer, a restoration builder. He, he wasn't into double glazing and that stuff. He just saw the quality in this house and what needed doing. Yeah. So we had three builders on site every day. Uh, two painters and decorators most of the time and the odd plumber and electrician coming and going. And that's how we did it in six months. It was just a, a work site. 
And what did you and Lynn do yourself? So you you were working on had, oh, had the tools out as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was putting channeling in for power cables and you know digging holes and solving problems, trying to be a um, project manager and things. It was, it was fun times. Mm. And John McCone would come over. I got a photo of John leaning on a shovel. He was like the unpaid supervisor. <laughs> uh, every job needs one of them. Yeah, yeah. John, John well, came over and yeah. he, he'd grown up in that place, hadn't he? I he'd grown up. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was his family's farm. Yeah, and, uh, and it must have been great for him to watch it being restored again. Yeah, I think he just stood there, just amazed at you know it all happening around him. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we had a um, for the community. Um, we had a pre-demolition party in midwinter, and um, we invited all the locals. You know, got the McCones, and they gave us the names of all the others around the place. And we said, "Come on over, we'll just have a midwinter party." So they all arrived and walked in the front door and they were all in their um, uh, warmest clothes that they could find because they knew how cold that homestead was. And as they walked in the front door, we had this jet engine roaring, you know, those gas heaters? (laughs) Yeah. And the heat was just pouring through the place, so they had to strip off a bit. And we said, this is how hot it will be when we're finished. Uh, And we had pictures around the the house because it was all planned what we were going to do, how we were going to rearrange the rooms. So they wandered round and at the end of the night, you know, well, nice to meet you, Mike and Lynn, you know, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> some some doubting Thomases amongst them. Absolutely. <laughs> because it was, you could see it was just a massive job. Mm. So then six months later, um, the builders walked down on Christmas Eve. The first guest was, was John Hawksby was due, you wanted a name, there's a name. Yeah. Uh, he was due as our, um, on the 2nd of January. So when they left on Christmas Eve till the 2nd of January, the family were polishing silver and crystal and everything else, getting it ready. And, and shortly after that, we had a, our, our barbecue and invited all the locals back for the barbecue. Yeah. And um, we were worried because they were wandering around looking at all the stuff we'd done and no one was saying anything. Couldn't figure it out. It was because their jaws had just dropped open. Yeah. And they just couldn't believe what had happened in six months because there were William Morris wallpapers, the dampness was gone, the ceilings were all black, bright, uh, painted on the um, whatever they're called, a thing with oh, the, the plaster yeah, yeah. things. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And the cornices, oh, it was just an amazing transformation. And, um, yeah, they were just blown away by that. So that's when we started our five-star B&B. Yeah. So that was always the plan, to set it up for a B&B or was Well, that... yeah, we are going to put all our life savings into it. We've got to get some sort of return. Yeah. So, yeah, we wanted to share share the history. And that's when I got into history. Remember, I'm a physics maths teacher. I'm yeah. not a historian. Yeah. And that's when I got into the local history of the area. Yeah. And as you met all the locals and the people you, and read the books... Whitestone country and all that sort of stuff, you started to get a feel for the place. Yeah. And um, and then, of course, yeah, parallel story to that is uh, in the late 1990s, uh, Napara School closed and that sent ripples through the communities. Mm. And in Duntroon they said, shivers, we could lose our school. If we lose our school, we lose our community. Yeah. And um, you know, what are we going to do about it? Um, so we called a meeting, several meetings, and basically concluded, well, council aren't going to rescue We've got to rescue ourselves. So we formed over the years, we formed three different community groups. Um, I'm trying to think. The first one, I think, was the long-winded DDDA, which is the Duntroon and District Development Association. Yeah. We didn't want to be ratepayers association. We wanted to develop our town. So that group was formed and um, was chairman of that. And um, that, that meant we looked at our assets. What do we got? Um, how can we make this place hum? How can we grow our community? Um, and the first thing we did was brought the jail back, not because we had a lot of 
misbehaving people, mm-hmm. but it was a piece of our history and it was sitting in De Geest's yard yep. here in town. So that came back and, and from there we just grew our assets and started wetlands and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah the Duntroon um, community has done an amazing job and, you know, I think it, it's there's a number of communities that are very proactive and I think it would be probably the most proactive in Waitaki um, just with all of the, the things you've just got gotten on and done. And, um, you know, most recently, the last weekend, I think more plantings at the wetland area oh. and so on. There's just work bee, working bees all the time and community turns out. It's great. Yeah, it's it's not all the community. No, no. <laughs> I mean, one, one of our hassles is, is that... Being a voluntary group, we think about things like uh, public liability, you know, things like that, and we ended, ended uh, eventually got a public liability that covered three different community groups. Uh, and my argument was it's the same people on all three groups. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, so people have served on all the different communities yeah. groups that we've had. And I say to people, you know, they say, how do you earn your money? And I say, well... Think about this. The whole town's got a population of 100 people. Um, if you're going to have a cake stall and you spend the evening making your cakes, you then put them on the stall the next day on the main street and um, the number of people that stop is minimal, so at the end of the day you buy your cakes off yourself and you go back home. Well, we concluded that was no way to raise money. Yeah. So um, what our volunteers do is, is we have contracts. We have a contract with the council. To clean the toilets, oh, yeah. and so they get a minimal return. The, the volunteers to cover their expenses, but we get income by cleaning the toilets. We run the camping ground, and so by managing that, we get a certain percentage of what goes through the place to help manage it. So they're our main sources of income, and from there we leverage funds Brilliant. to do the other things that yeah. we need to do. One of the places in Dundrum for me is the wetlands. What was your involvement in that and how did that come to pass? Because it's just it's a great area and I know a lot of people go there to visit or if, if people listening today haven't been up there, it's well worth going up and having a good look around the wetlands. Yeah, well, that was uh, a swampy area and I think over time farming had reclaimed it yep. from being a wetlands. Um, but uh, there's a section of land there that was owned or purchased by Meridian Energy back in the days of Project Aqua, they were purchasing land in all directions. And so they were trying to get on side with all the communities down the uh, valley. And in Duntroon, they said, well, look, you know, if this goes ahead, we'll give you a lake. And um, and so they had purchased some land there. Yeah. And then when Project Aqua fell apart, the land was still there and it was sort of reverting back to being a wetlands. Why? Because... Under Duntroon is an underground stream that comes from way up in the Marafanua. And it seeps down and follows a water table and it comes out at the uh, back of the blacksmith shop where there's a great tomo, which is the um, brewery hole. And then it continues underground and comes out down in the wetlands. So if you look at the wetlands, there's no creek flowing into it, but there's a hell of a lot of water wow. flowing out of it. Yeah, And that's because of this upwelling from the underground stream so that's the water source so it was naturally going to go back to being a wetlands and all we tried to do was um had to be very careful we got some funding from ecan and um you're not allowed to muck around with earthworks and things in uh, wetlands and stuff but we we managed to be able to do some enhancements (laughs) which uh, just helped to put uh, a little bit of dirt from here to there and make sure that the hollows were full of water and uh, it yeah. wasn't just swampy, boggy land. Yeah. So it, it worked out well. We got a lot of support there from ECAN when, in doing that and from another group, the Waitaki River Acclimatation something. Acclimatisation Society, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's been brilliant. ECAN and all that, if they go and look at what you've done now, they would not be able to fault what we have there as an asset in the district. Yeah, they yeah, well, shouldn't be able to. No, they worked with us until we got off the ground. Of course, then they've got other fish to fry. Yeah. Pardon the pun. but <laughs> And so we carry on and just do it, and yeah. the wetland group just keep working at it. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And yeah, if people haven't been to go and uh, to have a look and a wander through, I highly recommend they go and do it. And the other part of it is, though, that was only half the wetlands, and yep. the other half was uh, donated by uh, the Keelings, Keeling Dairies. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Keeling and Jan are pivots of the, of the community there, and they've given us the other bit of land. So yep. that's sort of on loan. So that and they've done a lot of work too with riparian planting and so on. Absolutely. On they've the got their own wetlands further yeah. up. Yeah, which is great and, and, you know, quite accessible via the cycle trail. Oh, the cycle trail is just amazing as you come in there from Takiroa mm. through their wetlands, then down into our wetlands and then into the town. Yeah. Yep. It's, no. It is very nice. Very, yeah, very good ride. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the brewery hole and obviously... That's become a, a bit of a thing. So why the name and and uh, tell us about what, what the community's done there. Um, my memory is a little off on maybe the name. I think the guy's name was Wishart. And uh, there's a quote there on one of the interpretation panels which came from one of the early papers. I think it was the Omru Mail, but I could be wrong on that, saying, um, should you be passing through Duntroon, you should stop off. Uh, there's a great curiosity there. There's this hole uh, and a little shed down the bottom where there's a brewer brewing. It's called the Brewery Hole. So apparently an early brewery was set up there, yeah. probably to meet the needs of the um, Marifanua Goldfields and people in the area. Um, but uh, he didn't last long, and I think he's the same person. I think he came to Omaru and set up an Omaru Brewing Company. Okay. So he grew, you know, got further into the... The business. Mm. Yeah. Would have been the purest water around, though, like the way it's filtered through underground and then popping up the air would have been. Yeah, well, one would think so. Um, uh, and the Maori name for the place I've just escapes me at the moment, but it means sweet water. Yeah. And uh, when you look at this lovely water flowing through, you would assume that it's very pure. Uh, so much so that the council at one stage said, right, we're going to turn that into the town water supply. So they built a um, concrete block building, put a pump in there and pumped the water out up to a tank at the highest point in the town and that was the town's water supply. But these days, just because water goes underground doesn't mean that it's pure because it came from the sky, it was pure, it hits the land and that's when it becomes impure. And once it's impure, the impurities are in the water. So the water was often tested and uh, found to be wanting so that has been closed as the town water supply and the water supply comes direct from the Waitaki River. Can I ask a controversial question? What did it find in the water supply and where did that come from? I don't know. It was just it didn't meet standards. Just okay. In fact there's some interesting there's another interesting story. There was a local um, Maori man who um, was into the wetlands and the eels and the things like that and uh, apparently the council People came out and tested the water and the, whatever the count was they were looking at was sky high and can't figure this out. And one of the locals said, oh, look, come back and test it again tomorrow. I'm thinking there's something abnormal happening here. So the word went out and they tapped Pat on the shoulder and said, you're not eeling in down there, are you? Yeah, I've got a tramp down there. Can you whip it out, please? <laughs> <laughs> and so the next time it was tested, it was fine. Ah, all right. <laughs> Something to do with the bait, isn't it? Probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bit of E. coli. So that's a local story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, and and you, yeah, the brewery hole was behind the blacksmith's yeah. shop. So that's another story, isn't it? Oh, yeah, the blacksmith's shop. That whole area in Duntroon used to be populated with a couple of pubs and um, uh, it, it was a whole streetscape. Yeah. In fact, there was a chemist shop there and uh, a busy little town and the blacksmith was part of it. Um, and over the years, the blacksmith grew. It began as a single building and uh, it was owned by Yardley and uh, he was there to shoe horses, basically. But horses do more than just lose shoes. They pull carts and wheels come off carts. So it wasn't long before they extended it and added a wheelwright. So that was the second extension out the back. And even the wheelwright building wasn't big enough and they enlarged it. And then eventually um, the T-model Fords arrived and so an engineering workshop was added. So this blacksmith um, went through all the phases of the early horses, through the horse-drawn vehicles, to the powered vehicles that came. 
and uh, the last um, owner of the place, um, uh, uh, Muirden, was it? Um, Can't recall. Yep. Uh, he, so. he, he, he left, and when he left, he left and all the um, tools were there. Yeah. Uh, and so basically it was shut up and it was a very historic building, but it was falling down and the um, greenery was eating into it and the walls were falling down and everything else and um, four local farmers put their heads together, John Hoare, Bill Simpson, um, Burns Pollock and Harvey, whose first name escapes me, rocked up to the pub one night and said, um, drinks are on us, guys. Oh, why's that? We've just bought a, a future asset for the town. What's that? Uh, the blacksmith's like, oh, not that heap of sh- That's for, oh, you stupid, oh, it's going, ah. Oh. And they couldn't believe it. And Bill Simpson turned to them and said, wagged his finger at them and said, you mark my words. He says, one day this will be the most important building in this town. He's since passed on, but yeah, yeah. it's back to life. Yeah, yeah. good vision. Oh, well, they had the vision, yeah. uh, but then we had to do the work to get it to reality. <laughs> that was the challenge. Yeah. And yeah, um, I know there was a, a lot of fundraising. I mean, basically, you had to re- replace all of the cladding and new roof, and there's been a lot of work done, and you know, a real testament to the, the work of a lot of volunteers. Yeah, yeah, fundraising was the challenge. Um, and we were, had things stalls outside supermarkets here in town. We ask them to donate a dollar, and we'd line all the dollars up along a metre rule. And mm-hmm. when you did that, by the end of that, you had ten dollars or something. And people were just putting in their coins, and that was where it started. Then we leveraged that with community trust Otago funds and council funds and lottery funds, and we eventually got there. And the blacksmith shops running. Most weekends you've, you take classes there. It's, um, yeah. it's, it's a wee centre of activity, isn't it? It began life. Uh, the thing we put to everybody when we were fundraising was it was going to be a blacksmith museum. So we classified all the art. They were all accessioned and numbered. Um, but it wasn't long before we realised when we called some meetings of people to demonstrate that they wanted a working blacksmith. And so it changed and became mm. a working blacksmith. And you're right, the weekends they try to have it open with the fire going and somebody working and they offer courses for beginners. Had a knife-making course recently, which is extremely popular, particularly with the women, because they can make their own carving knife yeah. in oh, the wow. kitchen. Yeah. yeah. And who runs a uh, knife-making course? You bring someone in? Yeah, yeah someone yeah. came in for that. Um, yeah. A number of years ago when I was heavily involved with the blacksmith, I was um, trying to get them to be trained up to do it. But um, we couldn't really get people prepared to go over to the West Coast to to learn the stuff and that. But looks like it's about to happen finally. Because there is a resurgence in that kind of thing. And I think I know there's a lot of programs on making knives and swords and things. So, yeah, a little Duntroon making swords and knives and why not? You know, Harry Petherick's keen on his knives. He's, he's yeah. a local guy there that works yeah. in the blacksmith shop and he's yeah. done some beautiful work. Has he? Yeah. And makes some of the other sculptures around the place, animal sculptures and things too, which is, yeah, yeah it brings the place alive. So just going to jump in there. So were you teaching through everything we're talking about here? You had to go back teaching for a bit uh, and, then, and everything worked in together or was there, was it after you got the um, five-star bed and breakfast up and running? Did you have to get back into, you know, yeah. the books and the discipline? and the, yeah. yeah. So when we were there and trying to make the homestead go, there were other things happening up the valley. And Dave Wilson, who's a character around town here, who's worked for many years and worked with a Department of Internal Affairs and helped raise funds for um, a lot of the signage around the town on heritage trails and starting up a whole lot of initiatives in the town, trying to get horse and carriage rides and things going. He, he came up the valley and the valley was not very coherent. And this was when we were at the homestead there and we started a thing called um, Explore Waitaki Valley was the name of the group. And we had a stagecoach as our symbol. 
And so they asked for somebody as a part-time person to run it, so I put my hand up, so I got some income from that, which was handy when I needed it during that time. And I worked with the towns up the valley, and every town adopted a different approach. Duntroon had the DGDA and other ones. Uh, Kurau already had a museum community group and a community group. Uh, Oda Matata decided to set up a... a, a, uh, a community group, I think, I can't remember what their group is, and Amarima set up a business group. So each of the towns tried to get some coming together yeah. uh, of interested people to put a bit of life into the, the heart of the town, and each one had an organisation that was set up. And uh, meanwhile, I was running around talking to the tourism operators and uh, conning them into giving me some money so that we had a stand at the... Um, Trends. We went off to Trends yeah. and representing the Waitaki Valley and saying, you've got to come down the valley. Yeah. You know, you're missing something. This is what we're selling. Trends being the tourism the, the rendezvous in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, Expo selling New Zealand to the world. Yeah, yeah. so that was a grassroots thing from the valley people. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, that, that was cool. And and teaching? No, teaching still hasn't appeared. Um, <laughs> Teaching came when the homestead, we were in the homestead for a number of years. We entered tourism's uh, awards. We ended up winning the award as the supreme winner one year. and um, But we only ever reached break even because getting people to stay there uh, was a challenge uh, out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. People would say, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. We would say, no, we're in the centre of the universe. Um, this was the centre of the universe of the people in the homestead. Yeah. And when you look at it, we're central to Christchurch, Queenstown, everything else too. But they had to come there to discover that. But uh, we only ever reached break even and we were looking, well, getting older and deciding we need something in the bank for retirement. So that's when I went back part-time teaching. Mm. And so we would run the homestead, Lynn would work all day, I would go off into town and earn some money teaching and I'd come back and entertain the guests at night and we were doing sort of the working in tandem that way, yeah. trying to make it work. Yeah. Eventually um, we decided we had to sell up the homestead because uh, it wasn't as dynamic as we had hoped and we needed to get some income so I moved into full-time teaching at Waitaki Girls. Yeah. <clears throat> that would have been a sad part, selling up the homestead. I bet there would have been a lot of sleepless nights and discussing that. And Yeah, it wasn't easy to let go. Yeah. And it, I mean, we look back fondly yeah. and um, remember what we did and it's totally proud of what we've achieved over the years in that place. Yeah. But um, life has to go on. Yeah. And um, while you were at Waitaki Girls, uh, you know, uh, yeah, what years were those, or who, who were the who was the principal during that time? Oh, gosh, <laughs> you're giving my memory now. Well, um, it's the thing you've done so much over your time, it's hard to remember all the details. I'm sure. <laughs> no, my memory isn't good on names. It yeah. never has been. I remember uh, taking my wife uh, to a school formal thing one day, and it was earlier on before she'd got to know the staff. And uh, I said, uh, I'd like to introduce you to the deputy principal of Logan Park High School, whose name totally escapes me. (laughs) (laughs) Very memorable. I can relate to that at time, Mike, as well. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I'm trying to think. The the first, you've had a couple of few principals we've been through. Mm. Each one puts their stamp on the place and comes in like a new broom and changes a few things. But uh, yeah. No, they're good years and came a housemaster there at uh, Waitaki Girls, Wilson House. Um, so just on the teaching, you've, you've taught at co-ed, boys' school, girls' school. Um, any bit better than the other, do you think? No. Or easier? No, no. Each one has its flavour and its um, uh, character. Mm-hmm. And um, basically some children thrive better in one environment than the other. And for some, co-ed is not right, and single-sex schools are, and vice versa. So, no, I don't have a, a stand to make yeah. uh, on that. 
Mm. Uh, we're just lucky we have all three options you do. here in Amaru. Uh, so. Yeah. yeah, and there are three very good options yeah. in North Otago mm. and Omaru. Yeah, and so, up the valley, we have good options up there as well. Yeah, primary schools up there. Yeah. So you um, you got into uh, other heritage things. You were taking tours around Omaru um, for visitors. You were um, you you were doing other things. You got involved in the. Um, uh, Vanished World at Duntroon, um, that I think was more latterly, but uh, yeah, it, that's that, that really became the start though of the this, the drive to create a geopark. And um, so we, we're getting low on time, but you know, do you want to run through some of those things? Okay, if we look at um, Vanished World, yeah, I was one of the founding members, both Lynn and I were. Um, there were 15 signatures needed to create Banish World Incorporated and 12 of them had rural addresses. And the amazing thing is that 12 farmers or people from the farming community created a maritime uh, fossil museum in the middle of the country. You know, it's just amazing. But that's where the fossils are. Mm. So that was set up and um, I was part of that group, very much so in the beginning, but then I stepped back because... There's always other things, and I step back and put my time into the DDDA, mm. and then I stepped aside from that and put my time into the blacksmith shop. But now I've come back into Vanished World, and mm. um, that's because after 20 years or so, um, it's mainly the same people that founded it were still running it. And um, Ewan Fordyce, who's the um, professor of uh, paleontology in Otago Museum, and was responsible for discovering many of these extinct uh, fossils of dolphins and whales and penguins and things. He stood there with Vanished World all the way through it and put up with committee meetings and everything else, came up from Dunedin. Uh, and he was sort of the backbone of it. He, he had the academic clout and knowledge for us to use. And in a sense, it's a showcase of what he did um, and still happens down in Dunedin, but it's this is their uh, community showcase yeah. through Vanish World. And he, in travelling overseas, saw geoparks and he felt that this could become a geopark. And so the seed was sown and he rode off to Paris and then he got his knuckles wrapped because he, Paris said, no, you don't write direct. You've got to work through your country's UNESCO. So we contacted UNESCO here and they weren't sure what a geopark was. But still... <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do that. Let's go there. Unravel for me what a geopark is. Pretend I know nothing and you're trying to... Just pretty close to the truth. <laughs> <laughs> but carry on. Yeah. Pretend, okay. just help me understand why it's so important for our district and what the value of it and what it literally means. So I've read a little bit and I've understood a bit and I know there's a lot of people very excited, but for the average person like me, what does it mean for us here? Okay, there's several ways to tell that story and you need to tell it probably from different lenses yep. in order for it to make sense. If you look at it from the UNESCO lens, UNESCO set up geoparks because a lot of the world didn't have uh, World Heritage Sites and World Heritage Sites are amazing, yeah. but they take years and years to create and a lot of developing countries didn't have that, but they had fantastic scenery and fantastic geological attractions and things. So they set up geoparks in a sense to allow a lot of developing countries to find an asset, a natural asset that they had, and develop a whole lot of uh, community development around it and hopefully bring in um, uh, overseas tourists and stuff and help them to get on their feet yep. and help their development. Um the short, a short-term definition is is that a geopark is a bounded area of land which has at its core something of international significance. Brilliant. Geologically. Love it. At its core. And then around that core are all the other things which are slightly less uh, internationally recognised. They might be nationally recognised. So you have a whole lot of other assets around this central core, but you must have a central core. Yep. And basically our central core is... Um, the marine fossil thing that centred around Vanished World mm. and the other strength to our bow is, is the development and the understanding of Zealandia, which is uh, the continent that we live on. Yeah. Um, uh, we're not just islands in the middle of a deep ocean. We are bits of land as part of a continent 
that stick up above the sea level, but a lot of our continent is still below right. sea level. Yeah. Um, and that's Zealandia. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, that's good. So what restrictions? So the geopart thing, and then there become restrictions on the land that we no. designated geopart. You can't go build a well, massive well, hotel there or, no, no, you know, no, things like that's, that. The, the, the UNESCO no. geopark has, has no say in that. Oh, is that right? Yeah. No, it, 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 it that's the local, that's yeah. the national laws and, and yeah. the, the local body laws. Yeah. Um, and, and the geopark doesn't go around creating laws or policing laws. Yeah. No, that's not what it's about. The geopark then, with this central core, uh, I could summarise it then as, and we'll go to some Maori values, which is the land, the people, people. and their stories. Yeah. Now, those three words sum it up. Mm. You've got your geology, um, and around the geology you've got um, the people, and so in this area there's a lot of farming. Farming's our core business. Yep. And so our farming in this landscape um, is where we get our wealth from. Yeah. Uh, and then in that area there, we've got all our stories. We've got the Maori stories shown in our rock art um, and in uh, the artefacts in the Willits collection and a whole lot of stories down at Moiraki. Mm. Um, and then we've got our colonial stories, which are how Oamaru grew and was the seventh biggest development here and was as big as Los Angeles in the 1800s and yeah. uh, all and that had, sort of and stuff. And had more pubs per population than anywhere else in the, <laughs> and, and the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all that exciting yeah. stuff is all yeah. there. And those stories are the things that people love. Yeah. And there's the threads of um, education that are in there. There's environmental um, yeah. protection, the sustainability. So, so all of these things come into that, which is – Actually, does reflect a lot of the Maori um, you know, principles and values. Yep. So all those things. So basically, what it's doing is, is it's just providing an umbrella. Mm. In fact, I, I would liken the UNESCO Geopark as sort of like a qual mark. It's saying you come to this region and you've got a quality product here. There's mm. some great sceneries. There's some great things to explore and stories to understand. And it's under that umbrella. Yep. But our stories are there. Whether we get you know, UNESCO sign off or not, all, all that stuff's there. And that's what a geopark's meant to be, bottom up. And in a sense, Duntroon epitomises that. This is a community taking responsibility for itself. And the same now happens with the district. We've got to take ownership of, of our land and our exciting things that are in it and be proud of it and protect it and share it with others. I love it. I love it that... Um you're calling it our land. You've taken ownership of mm. of being here. So that was going to be one of my questions to you. Is this home now or oh. do you still hanker back to Australia? No. Or? Yeah. No. Oh, God, don't start me on Australians. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I get that feeling from you. You have a passion for the land. You have a passion for the history. You have a passion for the culture. And that's really coming through And everything that you do. You're a man that puts effort and time into what you believe um, is good for the district, good for the people, good for the story of our land. So thank you for that. Yeah, this is my whanau. This is where I live. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. And, and yeah, you identify with the river, the the mountain. You've got a mountain. Mount Debet. Yeah. Uh, the Marafanua River. The Marafanua. And there's a yeah. great sequoia in the front of the Tokarahi homestead, mm. uh, which is 30 metres high. Yeah. And uh, that's my tree. Yeah. So you say you're nutty Aussie, or how does that work? Yeah, <laughs> nutty new kiwi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah. it's um, it's been great to talk to you today, Mike. And I know there's, there's more things in there, but we've cut, touched on a, a lot of the import, things of importance that you have been involved in that you've done. Um, you know, reasons why you've made. New Zealand and the Waitaki District, your home. So we're very pleased to have had you here today. Oh, thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, I feel like we could do a part two one day down the track. There just seems to be a lot more there. A couple of questions just to finish on. What was the one thing you're most proud of? Was it the homestead? Was it the vanishing world? What is it, or what is the one thing you go, yeah, that's my legacy or that's what I'm proud of that I've been a part and helped? I think I'd have to say the homestead because uh, – uh, that was a partnership, my wife and I, and and we took it from where it was and created, brought it back to its original glory. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and people who saw it in that state 
know what we achieved there. Awesome. But, of course, unfortunately now it's not open to the public, so I, we can't share that, which is unfortunate. And there's so much in those estates that are out there, but getting access to it all, to those stories, is a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And cool. And this last question I just have for you, what gets you out of bed at the moment? What's your project? Is it the geopark or is it something else you're now sunk your teeth into and going, right, this will make a positive difference in the community? What gets you out of bed? Uh, right at the moment we're uh, embarking, and despite a lot of hiccups on the way, on a redevelopment of Vanish World. Yep. Um, Vanish World has got fantastic story but it's evolved over time and in some ways it's um, grown in a higgledy-piggledy way. And uh, finding the story that makes sense uh, to people is the challenge and then reshaping that story so that people can get a better uh, understanding of it. And and that uh, renewal of Vanish World is is where my energies are going right at this moment uh, in trying to get that off the ground. Is um, Elephant's Rock part of Vanishing World? I know it's close to it, but is it part of it? Yeah, Elephant Rocks is one of the sites yeah. on the trail, on the Vanished World Trail. Yeah. Uh, it's Vanished World. It's past tense. It's not vanishing. It's not disappearing vanished. now. Ah, sorry. It's, it's a world. It's, it's being more exposed to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the sites, and there are a number of sites, and a teeny fossil site, which is just up from Elephant Rocks, is yeah. another site. No, I thought so. Of course, see, I read an article about um, Steve Fenwick and um, Dean, his son, and um, – allowing access in there still. So just the farmers and the community that come down and value that and, and allow people to still experience that. Yeah, we're reliant on on, yeah. on the good nature of farmers to allow people to visit these sites. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes to the geology and, you know, the geopark, basically we've got some, some major tourist attractions already. We've got yeah. Moraki boulders, we've got Elephant Ross, we've got clay cliffs and so on. And that, you know, that's probably one of the easiest things to explain to people, you know, why would people come to Geopark? Well, it's like, well they already are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, thanks again, Mike, and really appreciate your time, really appreciate everything that you're doing, the the fact that, you know, you've breathed life into an old homestead and protected it for many years to come, um, you know, that significant legacy the work you've been involved in with Vanished World and with the Geo Park, I think that will be also um, a part of your legacy uh, as that becomes better known and better understood. Um, so thank you for all of the things you've done um, for helping to make Duntroon such a proactive community and uh, for adding to to the whole district. Cheers. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you coming in. Good to hear. There are some good Aussies out there after all. Look at that. There are indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all the, all the, yeah. Usually they've come to, to live in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. ones that come, they see the sense, come and live here. Oh, no. So hopefully, Damien, that's uh, helped you understand a few more of those things. I've learned a wee bit along the way as well. Look, to be fair, Gary, I, I, I've read about geoparks and I've picked it up, but it really, it's really helped me understand a lot more. And I guess there's probably a lot of people like me out there going, OK, I, I know we're trying to do something, but trying to grasp what it is. When you sit with someone like Mike and you hear his heart and his passion and what he's talking about, you go, OK, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That, uh, that's a good thing that someone or a group of people or organisation are trying to do for our district. And, yeah, it's, it's nothing but positive. That's what I take away from this, and it's good for our community. So anything good for our community is yeah. good good with me. And it's so often it's the people who have come from elsewhere yeah. who fall in love with the place who are the most passionate advocates for it. So, yeah, yeah and that's Mike to a T. Yeah, but not too many Aucklanders, eh? Well, no, there's no. a lot of those. <laughs> um, no, yeah, and you did right. Um, I just uh, think, yeah, it feels like we could have um, talked for another hour with Mike, so maybe one day down the track we'll have to get him back on and, and, and do a part two because he seems to have a lot of history there. I'm interested in his tours that he does around our district and, and the old part of town and all of that. So, yeah. yeah, how about we do that down the track one day? And yeah. um, yeah. Sounds good. And um, just acknowledge the part that uh, Lynn... His wife has played yeah. in it, and um, well, maybe we we'll interview Lynn next time and get the other side <laughs> of renovations <laughs> and buildings, and we might get some hope truths there. Yeah, uh, yeah. she's been a big part of a lot of what's uh, what's yeah. happened there, and 
let them out of the house as yeah. well to get on with some of those ah, things. Very good. All right. Excellent. And that's an hour up. Right. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> Thanks very much.